This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. I'd like to look at Psalm 139. So I'd like to invite you to take out that first psalm that we had and have a look at that uh, psalm. We're beginning our series as we lead up to Christmas. Our theme for this year at Christmas is Come Home for Christmas. And we want to... We want to explore God's invitation to us to come home, to come home. But first of all, I want to ask you, who are you? And to address that question, I want to start with three scenes. This week, the first scene, I was travelling into Martin Place in the city on the train when I saw an advertising sign with a very successful man in a nice suit on it. So that caught my eye immediately. Uh, His name was Pep Guardiola. He's the manager manager of Manchester City Football Club. And his message was this. We are our choices. You don't get to be one of the best football managers by chance. Pep Guardiola chose to dedicate, dedicate his life to the game, to play it, to shape it. He not only became a hero, He has spent an entire career making them. He chose his destination, have you. This was advertising, does anyone know? Etihad, Etihad Airlines. He chose his destination, have you. And you know, the more I thought about it, the more I found this deeply disturbing. Of course, it has a surface appeal to it. It feels empowering. I choose, therefore I am. Know me by the things that I choose. My career, my possessions, my relationships, my achievements, my clothes, my Instagram feed. But the reality is that answering that question, who am I, gives me a kind of vertigo of the self. If I'm my choices, then what about my many poor choices? It feels like I'm standing on the edge of a bottomless cavern. Who am I? It feels like the answer to that question, that I have to answer it, that I'm demanded to answer it. And yet, how can I answer it? Or how can I face the answer if I do find it? Today, apparently, we believe that we are our choices. And we need to show everyone what they are. So that's the second scene. We've been in the marketplace, Martin Place. Now, I want to take you to the gymnasium. And so the other day I was at the gym, Anytime Fitness, down at Edgecliff, and there was a woman on the leg press. If you don't know what the leg press is, that's where you sit back and the weights are the kind of, uh, that you're pressing your legs up and you kind of put weights on it so that you can do some exercise there. And I want to use the leg press. It's part of my routine. But this woman was sitting on it, as people do, one of the most annoying habits in the gym, sit on the machines and play with your phone. And so there she was. And I noticed, um, as I looked over her shoulder, maybe that was a bit creepy, I'm sorry, um, that she was taking a photo of her legs on the leg press, and she'd uploaded it to Instagram with the words, leg day, on it. Only she wasn't doing any exercise at all. It was a complete fraud. It was was a leg day without doing leg day. It was a complete, I think, a perfect example of how unreal we really are. We know that the self we let others see is a mask. But what else can we do? 
Since the true answer to that question, who am I, is too hard or too boring or too complicated. More than ever before in human history, we relate to one another through carefully selected and cultivated masks. Social media has given us the chance to curate ourselves so that we have the impression, like a museum or an art gallery, so that we give the impression we want to others. So there's the powerful choosing self, the city, you are your choices. There's the curated self online, you are who you present to other people. What about scene three? What do you see when you go to the cemetery? I often walk through Waverley Cemetery on Friday, and there are stones there representing people who once were. These stones are identified. They've got names on them, but not much more. Why do we write our names on stone or on metal plaques? Because these things are more solid than we are. We want to be remembered, even if only by name. So who am I? Answering the question remains a puzzle. Am I, am I what others say of me? Or am I what I know of myself? And in the end, if all I am is a name on stone, what am I? Did I choose that? We are told to look inside of ourselves to understand who we are, and yet that doesn't help. If I am my choices, how do I know what my choices are? And what about my bad choices? When we turn to the Bible, we, found, we find a powerful answer to this question. But it comes from a direction that we don't expect. It doesn't come from within us. It comes from somewhere else. It comes from God. To understand who you are, start not with yourself, but with God. Not, I think, therefore I am, as the great philosopher Descartes said. Not, I choose, therefore I am, as the advertisers of this world, and also a philosopher called John Paul Sartre once said, but this, I am known, therefore I am. I am known, therefore I am. Because... God knows you. Did you hear the words of Psalm 139? God knows you intimately and personally. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. God knows you. He knows the beating of your heart. He knows the number of hairs on your head. In my case, he knows which ones are grey and which ones aren't. He knows the pattern of your neurons and the synapses, that, the synapses that give shapes to your thoughts. He has a knowledge of you that you don't even have yourself. It's a very intimate picture. But you know, that picture could be terrifying, couldn't it? The reason we put masks on when we go out in public is because we want to conceal what we know of ourselves from others. To be exposed and shown your true self is something we have nightmares about. We may feel, too, that God is like some great watching machine forever collecting information on us as the government of China is now doing with its citizens. And of course we know that when governments collect information on us, it's only because they want to measure us 
judge us and ultimately to control us. So it's God like this. In his classic novel, The Great Gatsby, and made for two great movies, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald symbolises God, I don't know if you remember this, by an enormous pair of eyes on a poster advertising the, uh, the optometrist, Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, who's got these two huge eyes overlooking the Valley of Ashes, which is in between the city and the world of West and East End, the glamorous world of the Great Gatsby. And these eyes just forever watch over the action on the stage of life, on the stage of this planet. Just watching, never caring, never intervening. In a way, that's the world we live in now, isn't it? With the great machines collecting endless mega data on us, collecting all the facts. We are, in one sense, known better than ever before because we are counted and measured. But the machines do not know us, do they? The psalmist is not afraid. And he doesn't find God cold like a machine. The exact opposite. In verses 5 and 6 he says, You hem me in, God. You hem me in behind and before. And lay your hand on me. That's not close me in and imprison me, but you protect me, you hem me in. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it's too high that I cannot obtain it. God knows all about him. But not just all about him. God knows all about him because he truly knows him. That's because of two things. The first of these is that God is always present with him. He's always there. That's in verse 7 and following, from verse 7 through to 12. He says, where can I flee from your presence? People tell me that on a dating app, I've never been on one, you'll be glad to know, you have the weird experience of knowing about someone before you actually know them. And so you have to make a call as to whether you'd like to date with them or possibly mate with them on the basis of the facts that you have about them. She's too tall. He's too chubby. She likes ballet and I hate it. He's into a band I've never heard of. This is the crucial thing about relationships, doesn't it? The facts are incidental. When you're in someone's presence, you actually fall in love anyway. God knows you. Because he's always with you. He takes you in not just as a list of qualities or properties, but in your entirety. Not just what you are, but who you are and who you will be. As the medieval mystic writer Meister Eckhart once said, God is closer to me than I am to myself. God is closer to me than I am to myself. He knows what it's like to be you. He's present. And the second thing is, the psalmist says, God knew me from the beginning because he made me. He's the creator who put me together, so he knows my inner workings. In verse 13, what does he say? For it was you who formed me, formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. It's fascinating to hear artists talk about what it's like to create their polished, finished work that we so much love. I heard Paul McCartney once tell, uh, tell a story of uh, creating the Beatles classic yesterday. 
First of all, he said, I had a dream and I fell out of bed and the tune was in my head. And then he said, I have to find some words to go with this tune. I don't know if you know what words he first put in. Instead of yesterday, he put in ham and eggs. So first of all, it was ham and eggs. How I like to eat my ham and eggs. That was how that song started. He has an intimate knowledge of that song that no one else has as its creator. Because he made it and he shaped it into what it is. That's God's knowledge of you. To be made is to be known. The process of shaping you, even when you are an unformed substance, is something you have no say and have no memory of. And yet, these processes are known by the one who made you. The extraordinary mystery and complexity that you are is not an accident. The length of your life is not known to you. The psalmist uses the image of a book. God has written in his book the days of our lives, though our mothers were not even pregnant with us. So God's present with us, and God knows us because he made us. What does that mean? It means two things. It means you belong to God, and it means you are remembered by God. You belong to God. Now just like that word know, we can understand it in two senses. We can understand the word belong in two senses as well. You belong to God, but not as an object in his possession, but as a child in his family. We use the word have in the wedding service in just this way. We say to have and to hold. And we don't mean that you've become part of your partner's uh, property portfolio, but that you belong in a, in a relational sense. My children, you might say, are mine. But they're not, the, they're not mine in the same way that my dog is mine. And I really hope my children realise that. You belong to God. And that means you are who you are in relationship to Him. He is your Creator who knows you completely. So then what is He to you? You owe Him your very being, your existence. You are a product of his mind, of his plan, of his purpose. So how is that a reality in your life as you live it? You aren't independently defined. We talk about self-made men, self-made men, self-made women. But these are actually fictional creatures. They don't exist. It's tragic the way we kid ourselves about this. You are not your choices. But if you feel lost and adrift, if you are feeling incomplete and not whole, if you can't make sense of yourself, if you don't know what your story is, then know that there is someone to whom you belong, not as a slave or as a possession or as an object, but as a child, as a creature. This is not just a theory for God. It's not just an abstract principle or an idea. In Jesus, God has skin in this game. He has tracked us down and found him. And even though we belong to him as his creatures, he has brought us back from sin and death and made us his own all over again. If only we would turn to him. We belong to him. And in Jesus, we belong to him again. 
we twice belong. And this means you belong to God. It means also that you are remembered by God. You are not forgotten. The psalmist puts this beautifully, some of the most beautiful poetry in the Bible. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol is the place of the dead in Jewish thinking, like Hades was for the Greeks. It just means if I die, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark for you. The light is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. God, not God's knowledge of you started in the dark before you even were and continues even after you die. I may perhaps be remembered by the generation that follows me, but I will be forgotten by my grandchildren who will remember me as that eccentric old person who told stupid jokes, and I'll be completely unknown, I assume, to my great-grandchildren and to their children after them. God. God has not forgotten. God will remember. He's there with me in my dying, in my divorce, in my lostness, in my addiction, in my disease, in my failure. He's even there with me when the shadow of death falls upon me. I was talking about this last week with a friend of mine whose wife, a Christian woman, has advanced dementia. Who is she now? He goes to visit her and she doesn't recognise who he is, she cannot speak. And he says, you know, it's a mystery. There is the shell of the woman I once loved. I don't know where she is now. I don't know who she is now. Where is the person, he said, that she was gone? Each moment for her is a disconnected fragment in time. And yet, though we cannot fathom who she is now, God has not abandoned her. He is still with her. He has not forgotten his dear child. Even there, he is with her. And that is true even as we walk through the cemetery, you feel the loneliness of that place and the desperation to be remembered. Paul the Apostle once said that, once said that, that his life was now hid with Christ in God. And for Paul, it's because Jesus had risen from the dead that he could know this with confidence. Death is not an obstacle to the power of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. So that we can face even the prospect of our own deaths with confidence that we are not lost when we die, that those we grieve for in Christ are not lost. So here's the bottom line for you and me this morning. You are known. You belong. A place has been made for you. You may look at your choices with pride. That good investment, the good real estate selection, the good choice of schools for your kids, the right career move, a fantastic marriage. And maybe you feel some pride. Maybe those things are good choices. But those are not who you are. And that pride might, might actually get in the way of a real intimacy with God. The one who knows you, 
beneath your skin and sinews, beneath the mask, behind the mask that you put onto the world. If you think you are your choices, you miss out on being still before God and the closeness that He has. Now you may look at your choices with some shame. Perhaps the spouse you chose was a disaster. Perhaps you made many false starts, double starts, triple starts in your career. Maybe you haven't found your career yet. Maybe you think every big choice you've ever made has brought awful consequences right down to that stupid investment, that absurd waste of a friendship. Maybe you've made some bad choices. Maybe you've paid a painful price for them. But by God, you are not your choices. You are so, so much more. You are a child of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, and even more fearfully and even more wonderfully redeemed. So come home. The one who knows you at your worst is precisely the one who loves you so much that he dies in order to remove your worst from you. If you've been searching to try to make sense of yourself and to make your own meaning, put it down and come home to the God who knows you. If you've not realised before now what it means to belong to God, come in from the cold and find yourself a place by the fire, at the table. Come to the place where you'll be recognised and where even with all the things about yourself that you don't understand, the bad choices and the good choices, your flaws as well as your strengths, your vices as well as your virtues, you will find that you belong. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian and pastor who spent much of the Second World War in prison, once wrote a poem called Who Am I? expressing just this situation that we've been thinking about this morning. And he said in that poem, Who am I? Am I the master that I show everyone else? Or am I that, that really weak, frightened individual that I know myself to be in my quiet moments? And at the end of the poem, he says, am I this or the other? Which am I? Instead, he turns to God and he says, whatever I am in, that situ in those situations, Lord, I know this one last thing. Lord, I am yours. That's what we too know. To come home to the one who knows. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.